Good morning, everyone. It is so good to have you here with us at Life Community Church. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm the pastor, one of the pastors here at Life. Uh, and uh, I'm just glad that you've joined us as we uh, begin to open up God's Word. We're going to be in the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John. If you don't know where that is, it's about uh, the, the beginning of the New Testament, the fourth book in the New Testament. If you go, okay, that doesn't make any sense either, what's the New Testament? Just kind of go in the middle and then go to the right a little bit, and you'll find it. Or if you have your you know, digital Bible, just type in the words, the word John, and you'll be able to find it. Um, but we've been in the book of John for the past couple of weeks. Uh, we've actually started right after Thanksgiving. Uh, we did the first 18 verses of John uh, over the Advent season, which goes from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Uh, and now we are going at a little bit more of a brisk pace as we are in chapter 4 today, chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. So if you would join me there. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and we're going to start reading. This is one of the more uh, famous stories. There's a lot of very famous stories in the Gospel of John, but this is one that I think means a lot to many people. Uh, it's one that you've probably, if you uh, have been in church, you may have heard this before. Um, but this is a, a powerful story about a woman at the well. And so we're going to go ahead and start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to, go, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So we have this setup of what is going on here in this very first part of the Gospel of John. Jesus is, his ministry is gaining influence. The Pharisees are seeing that his movement is getting bigger than the original, uh, the original guy that they were worried about, a guy named John. Uh, usually we call him John the Baptist. And Jesus' following is gaining more, more and more disciples. Both Jesus and John had a, a ministry of baptism at this time. Baptism was a way for the people to enter into repentance, to, de to declare that they repent of their sin and they will follow where the Lord leads. It kind of reminds us of, or, or reminds them, or is kind of symbolic of the crossing of the Jordan. It's kind of a baptism in that way. And so uh, this was the beginnings of this ministry. Last week, we saw a confrontation that Jesus had, not really a confrontation, a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came to Jesus at night, and he had questions for him. He wanted to know more about who he was. He wanted to know a little bit about what Jesus was teaching. So Nicodemus asked these questions, but Jesus, as he often does, uh, gets straight to the heart of the issue, and he actually discusses some things that Nicodemus probably didn't expect. 
And today, what we're going to encounter is another one of these conversations. We're going to see the truth that everyone needs Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, but everyone needs Jesus. Let's continue to read about. Uh, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna address one thing. Uh, it says that he's going through this place uh, called Samaria. If you're not familiar with the geography of Israel, don't worry, it's okay. Uh, you don't need to be supremely uh, aware of it. Just know this, that Samaria is an area near or in what the Romans called Palestine, which is Israel, uh, that had been in about 722. It was conquered by the Assyrians. This was uh, at this time the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember your Israelite history, there were two kingdoms of Israel. First, there was the kingdom under David, which was united, and Solomon, which was united. But then there was a fracturing of the, the kingdom of Israel into the northern tribes, which had ten tribes of Israel, and the southern, Judea, which had two. And the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was uh, noteworthy because it had literally no kings that were ever called good. Uh, there weren't any good kings in the northern kingdom. In Judea, you at least had like one or two. You had a couple of guys that were all right. But in the northern kingdom, it was, uh, it was not fun. And uh, because of this, God says that, listen, you, you're, you're bringing down judgment upon yourself. And by 722, the Assyrian Empire came through, captured the northern kingdom, and deported the Israelites that were living there. Then what they did is they resettled people from other areas, different foreigners, into this land. And it's actually a very interesting story if you want to go read about it. It's in 2 Kings 17 through 18. And during this time, there, was, uh, there were some lion attacks. There were some different things because this was God's land and the people were not adhering to God's law. And so the Assyrians are like, okay, we need to figure out what to do. So they actually send some Jewish people back to this area to try to help these foreigners to understand how to live in the land of Yahweh. And so the Sumerians, these people who uh, are a, a mixture of foreign-born people and uh, some Israelis, there is some intermarrying, but it's mostly foreigners, they develop their own version of Judaism. They adopt some of the beliefs. For example, they believe uh, things like uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. These are God's word given to Moses. They accept them, but they don't accept the prophets. They don't accept uh, the Psalms. They don't accept the other writings that we would call the Old Testament. They also uh, worshipped in a different place. Uh, the Jews worshipped in a place called Jerusalem. But the Sumerians worshipped on a mountain called Mount Gezerim. And so uh, they had these different places of worship. And then also they had a different idea of who would be the prophet like Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses promises that there will be another prophet like him who will come, God speaking through Moses. And what happens in the prophets that are the prophets who write later Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of those kinds of prophets, they begin leaving these little 
tidbits about this one who will come, this one who will be in the line of David, this one who is going to be the Savior. Isaiah calls him the servant of the Lord. And for the Jews, they develop this idea of the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But for the Sumerians, they only use the Torah, and so they, they have this idea of a prophet who will be like Moses, and they call this individual Taheb. And Taheb is this messianic figure that will come at the end of days and will explain all things to people, and there will be, uh, the, there will be a cataclysmic event, an apocalypse, uh, and God will establish his rule and his reign and Tahib will be the one who initiates that. These beliefs are heterodox. They're heterodox. Heterodox is a word that just means that it's not conforming to the accepted standard. Heterodox means that it's not orthodox. Orthodox means that this is the accepted standard teaching. Heterodox means not doing that. And so the Samaritans were viewed by the Jews as people who were heterodox. They sort of had a tie with them, sort of had a familial tie, maybe through some intermarrying, but mostly they had some beliefs that were just kind of wonky. You might even think of it as almost like folk religion to them. It was sort of Jewish, sort of Judaism, but not really. And so they kind of looked down upon the Samaritans. But as we are going through this, what we're going to learn is that just like in chapter 3, where the learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained Nicodemus realized his own need for Christ, so too will the unschooled, uninfluential, despised, heterodox Samaritan woman discover her need for Jesus. So let's continue reading in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offers this 
Samaritan woman, living water. I want to notice some things about the Samaritan woman. I want to notice a couple of things about her. Number one, she comes to this well alone. This is not usual. Usually, if women were coming to the well to get water, number one, they would avoid the heat of the day. Now, if you remember earlier in the passage, it says it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is about noon. That's usually the hottest point in the day. This woman is coming at noon, the hottest point of the day. But she's also coming alone. You know, this is even true today that usually women like to go do things in groups, right? You like to have a friend with you. This is a common thing. This is not uncommon, but especially in this day where you had to travel a long way to go get water, you didn't want to go by yourself. But common convention was you didn't travel with a bunch of other men. Men and women had a a different kind of interaction socially. And so women would typically go in groups, not at noon, to go and get water. This woman, this woman came alone. Something was off. Something was not right. Something did not seem to be, there, there may have been maybe a special circumstance. We don't know at this point, but what we're going to find out is that this woman was probably isolated by public shame. She had shame in her life. And so she went to the well alone. Jesus has this interesting interaction with her. I mentioned that men and women had social conventions, especially uh, between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. You would rarely, if ever, find a Jewish man alone or speaking alone with a Jewish woman, and you certainly would not find a Jewish man conversing alone with a Samaritan woman. But Jesus does this. He actually initiates the conversation. He says, hey, give me a drink. He was thirsty. You know, Jesus was just literally thirsty. He wanted to get something to drink. But the woman kind of responds like, hmm, this is weird. You're talking to me? This is an odd interaction. And then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. This woman has been isolated by her public shame, which we're going to address in a minute. This woman is alone. She is going at the worst time of the day to get an essential need for herself. And Jesus says, you know, if you would ask me, if you had known the gift of God that is here for you, I could have given you even better water than you're going to get right now. What you find, just like with Nicodemus, who kind of misunderstands or doesn't quite get what Jesus is getting at, the the woman does the same thing. She's like, "What, what, what are you talking about? You don't have anything to draw water with. I mean, you asked me for water. What are you, uh, what are you doing here, Mr. Jewish guy? What, what are you, what are you trying to get at here? Are you, do you think that you're greater than our father Jacob who made this well? who actually drank from this well. And Jesus tells her about the living water. This is something that 
for a Jewish audience would have resonated immediately. These words that Jesus is using. Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13 points out this. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. And hewn out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can't, cannot, uh, that can hold no water. When Jeremiah writes this, he is writing to a people to remind them of who their God is. When he uses the word living water, this is not supposed to mean like anthropomorphized water, like it, like it turns into a shape. This means like running fresh water from a spring, not stagnant water. Uh, stagnant water, we all know, like here in Virginia, if you let something just sit stagnant, you're going to get a bunch of mosquitoes. You're going to get a bunch of gross stuff. The water itself is going to get like a film on top of it. It's gross. Stagnant water is not what you want. And in fact, it's kind of interesting. You, if you have pets, uh, you may, might have noticed that if you just kind of have a water bowl for them, they might drink out of it. But if you have like a fountain that has water that flows, that is far more attractive to them because instinctually they know that flowing water is better than stagnant. This living water is the Lord himself. It's not the rituals or the religion of Judaism. It's not the, the, the things that surround Judaism, but it is the object of their worship, the one true God. It is a person. Jeremiah reminds us that we try to use our own cisterns to contain the living water. We try to just go there and, and get a little bit and go away for ourselves. But as we all know, it's much better to have a well right next to you than it is to try to travel all the time to get it, especially when you have a hole in your bucket. Our broken cisterns cannot contain the living water. And we've run away from the well. We've run away from going where that living water is. And that's what Jeremiah is reminding us for. But also, the book of Isaiah in chapter 55, verses 1 and 3, says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters that your soul may live. The idea of water being life-giving and invigorating. Now, I said that a Jewish audience would have immediately recognized this. But Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. And she doesn't recognize it. She doesn't recognize this understanding. And there's a reason why Jesus does this. Jesus wants to show us our great need. He wants us to know what we actually need. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, Nicodemus was like, who exactly are you? It's a great question, but Nicodemus needed something more than just information. He needed more than just a fact-finding mission. He needed more than just knowledge. He needed to be born again. 
When this woman is coming to the well, she's coming to get a life-sustaining need, her water. But she has a greater need than even her thirst. When Isaiah says, come and come all you who are thirsty, he's not just talking about the physical thirst that we have, but the thirst that we have in our spirit for the one true God. The living water forever perfectly quenches that true thirst that we all have. So let's read a little bit more, 15 through 19, as Jesus begins to fully address the Samaritan woman in her need. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. One of my favorite lines in all the Bible. Uh, it makes me laugh each and every time, because I can just imagine her going, How'd you know that? Uh, got to be a prophet. That's the only way that you know that. This woman, Jesus, it's interesting. He's like, hey, all right, I've been talking to you. Get, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. You're right. You actually had five husbands, and the guy you're with now, not your husband. Now we can see where maybe her public shame had come from. In the ancient world, to have so many husbands, and it doesn't seemed to imply that it was like, oh, she got married, and then, oh, he died. Oh, she got married, and then, oh, he died. And if, if so, there might have been maybe, like, maybe she should be on, like, a date nine tel uh, television show, like she was, like, some sort of black widow or something. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. It's not like she's murdering her husbands or her husbands are dying. It seems that she just kind of goes through guys. She gets attached to one, and then she's done with that one, and she gets too attached to another, and she's done with that one. And you can see, even in our day, that you know, there are public sins that get attached to people, and that's what they become known for. It's just her again. She's, she's that girl that has those five husbands. Did you hear she's got another one? The rumor mill was probably churning all throughout Sakar. They knew who this woman was. She knew who she was, too. And it wasn't like it was the greatest thing for her. She didn't think that it actually improved her life, but she was wrapped up in it, and she couldn't get out of it. But that didn't stop her. She didn't like it, but that didn't stop her. She just didn't know how to get out. You know, it would have been very easy for Jesus to just ignore this situation. To just have a polite little conversation about, hey, can I have some water, get some water, be done with it. 
But Jesus cares about this woman. He loves her. And when you love someone, you don't let them get away with stuff. You confront them on where they're messing up. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus does this in a gentle way. Jesus doesn't call her names. She'd probably been called all of them. Jesus doesn't, he's not just kind of cruel with her. He actually lets her kind of explain a little bit of what's going on in her life. Sir, I I have no husband. Let's Let's Jesus in a little bit. But Jesus does not allow her to leave that situation without the depths of her sin being confronted. An honest look at what our sin means and how serious it is is essential for us. For too many of us, we want to downplay our sin. It's not that bad. It's not bad compared to so-and-so. I've got five husbands, but did you know so-and-so's got 20? Ah, she's much worse than me. Pay attention to her. We always want to shift away from us. Because you know one of the things that sin does? Sin actually isolates us. We think that many times the sin that we get involved in will actually bring us some sort of community. It will actually bring us something that we want. And all it actually does is leave us empty and dry and with nothing. And completely and utterly thirsty. From a heart of compassion, Christ addressed how truly sinful this woman was. Not cruelly, but with compassion. The book of Romans in chapter 1 discusses how the human condition has been tarnished and fallen. And it says that in our pursuit of our own sin, God has handed us over to a debased mind. We, in our sin, fall Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Yes, Christ will address the depths of our sin But he does that to reveal the greater depths of his mercy. His love, his compassion, his grace, his mercy is greater than any of our sin. Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
There is nothing deeper or more meaningful or more precious to us than the love of God our Father. And the way that we see that depth is we have to be confronted with our sin. A gospel message that is given to you without the confrontation of your sin is a halfway measure that will not do. You must be confronted that, yes, you, you are a sinner. And you are in great need of a Savior. This woman's experience of this interesting Jewish man who has come and told her about her life, confronted her on her sin, and offered her living water, a water that will quench the true thirst that she has. This woman is just amazed. What's kind of interesting, and I'm not going to actually get into this, verses 20 through 24, uh, 25, 26. Um, there's this little theological discussion that she tries to bring up with Jesus about, uh, you know, oh, you guys worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on this mountain, and oh, isn't that interesting? And she kind of tries to sidestep a little bit, probably a little uncomfortable. When you get confronted with your sin, you're like, eh, let's slide over here to talk about a theological discussion that has nothing to do with me and my sin, but something to do with my people, and that's, let's not talk about it. And Jesus is like, oh, all right, nice try. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's the solution that Jesus brings to this minor step aside about what the woman is not really trying to be addressed in her sin. But let's read verses 25 through 30 and continue on to see what, how the woman responds to this conversation. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. One of the things that you'll find is that when you receive mercy and you receive grace and you receive that living water and you become part and you partake in the life of that living water, you'll recognize that living water doesn't sit still. So if you drink from the living water, you're not going to sit still either. This woman was propelled to bring others. She was compelled. She was vivified. She was animated. She was pushed. She had to go tell other people. This woman had come up with a water jug. 
to get water because, you know, water is important. You kind of need it to live. She heard all this from Jesus. She put her water jug down and ran down to tell other people about who Jesus was. She wanted to tell others. At one time, when she was first coming up to the well, she was isolated. She was covered in shame. And now, once the living water has been given to her, once she has discovered this, once she has received the mercy of God, that shame has melted away. It's not about her anymore. It's about him. Suddenly, there was an eagerness to tell others, to tell them about this marvelous man that she just met. Now, just as an aside, I had this scenario kind of play through my head of what it must have been like when she initially told the first person, you have to meet this amazing man that I just met. And probably everyone was like, another one? Really? You met another one. Okay, nothing new here. She's like, no, this is different. He might be the Christ. Okay, now you're dating the Christ. That's what you're telling us? I can imagine that there was a very funny sitcom situation happening there. But she didn't care what people thought about her. It wasn't about her anymore. It was about the Messiah. It was about the one who revealed to her the living water, the thing that she needs, the thing that she left her water jug behind so she could tell others about it. She found the living water, so she left her stagnant water behind. Now, one of the things that I have, uh, if you notice the title on the uh, very first slide earlier, it says, Disciples bring others. Because the, the full thrust of what's going on, of what is happening, is that this woman, she has found the living water and she is going to bring others to him. We've heard multiple stories now. Uh, very uh, first time that we were uh, broke out of the first prologue of John and we talked about uh, Nathaniel and Philip and Andrew and Peter. Something that they kept saying was, come and see. And then we see this again. The woman says, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. And when, when Pastor Reed preached, we talked about how disciples, they come and see who? They come and see Jesus. Disciples, they are coming to Christ. They are called to him. Last week, we talked about what happens in the life of a disciple. They're born again. When you come and see him, you are born again. You are renewed. And this week, what we're seeing is, again, a reiteration of that newness of life, this new life in Christ, but with, a, with the idea that it propels us to bring others to see that life. In, in church, we call this evangelism. Evangelism, which uh, sounds like an interesting word, and to be honest, it, it is—it's kind of a fun word, evangelism. Um, 
And it comes from uh, the Greek word euangelion, uh, which just means good news. Uh, euangelion became kind of the, the title for the overarching message of the kingdom of God in Christ, salvation being brought in him. And so we transliterate that into uh, evangelism. Uh, this is the act of telling others about God. And something that I, I notice when I bring this up to fellow followers of Christ is that it is typically not, they, they have a problem with evangelism. They, they don't know how to do it or they, they're not really, they're not sure what they should do and it's not really a regular part of their life. And they want to know why. And, you know, typically it's not because they don't love Christ, because they do. They love the Lord. They love his word. They are, uh, they are transformed by it. Sometimes, you know, people just feel not very confident. They're afraid of the questions that might be asked to them. Oh, well, you said this. Well, what about this? And you're afraid to be stumped. Uh, as if evangelism was like going on who wants to be a millionaire and you don't have a lifeline. Uh, you're like, I don't know, and then that's it. Everybody just never comes to Christ again. Sometimes people are afraid of rejection, that once you share who Jesus is, that people look at you as kind of like this religious freak, a uh, person who's a little too involved in their beliefs, or maybe someone who's too pushy. Why, why are you trying to push your beliefs on me? Why are you trying to do that to me? And especially in a day and age where uh, it's very funny, you can believe anything, but you better not talk about Jesus. Unless Jesus is like just nice Jesus, the one that is uh, very kind and, and loving and doesn't really confront us in our sin, uh, kind of avoids that part of it. He's just, you know, he just kind of glides on the, on the air he do, and he doesn't really say any mean things to people. But when we talk about who the real Jesus is and what he, what he desires for us and the fact that we are sinners, you know, we, we sometimes get afraid that people are just going to judge us and they're going to they're not want to be around us. They're not going to want to talk to us. And this is especially a, a big fear for people when they're sharing with their friends or their family. But I, I want you to see a couple things here that I hope will give you a new way of looking at sharing Christ with others. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with, to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So we have this scenario where the disciples have come back. They're, they're like, all right, not going to comment on the talking to woman thing. That was, we're just not going to say anything about that. But Jesus, have you eaten anything? Because what's kind of funny is like they went to the town to go get food, and Jesus had this deep theological conversation with this woman who then all of a sudden runs away. And Jesus is like, this is awesome. This is great. He's praising God for it. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we just went into the town. We bought you some food. We had to be a bunch of around, around a bunch of Samaritans. And, and now you're not eating. Just eat something. And Jesus is like, guys, I got something that satisfies me that you don't know about. He kind of says it in a sneaky way, by the way. He's like, I have food you don't know about. And the disciples, much like Nicodemus, much like the Samaritan woman, they don't get what he's saying at first. They're like, you have secret snacks? Why did you make us go into the town to get you food? But what he's referring to is he has a, a way of gaining satisfaction and contentment by doing God's will, by doing what God has sent him to do. Are you dissatisfied? Are you dissatisfied with the way your life is? Maybe you should ask yourself, are you doing what God has given to you to do? I'm not talking about some grand, big, giant purpose of, well, you were put on earth to be a, a, a radio host. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the stuff that God lays out plainly for us here in Scripture. To love God, to worship God, to enjoy God, to love others, to care for others, to show compassion on others. Are you dissatisfied in your life? Are you doing what God has given to us to, to do, being faithful in those things? Because that's how Jesus found his contentment. That's how Jesus found his satisfaction. And Jesus was trying to teach his disciples because, you know, they're disciples. And he's like, I'm going to teach you something here. And they're like, huh? What? What are you talking about? And then Jesus says, all right. You're about to get a lesson in what this is about. You, know, you guys talk about harvest. You say, oh, four months and then the harvest. I'm telling you right now, the harvest is ready. There are people who have already worked. The, the, there are those who have already sown, and I am sending you out into a field that is white and ready for the harvest. And then, all these Samaritans show up. And they beg Jesus to stay for two days. Stay. We want to know more. We want to, we want to understand. The disciples are probably blown away. What is going on? What are these Samaritans that we had to haggle for food earlier are now coming up and they're just, what's going on? Who, who told them that Jesus was here? They forgot about the woman that ran past them as they were coming up. And the woman wasn't some great theological mind, some Billy Graham evangelist who could keep you enraptured with her speech. She just said, 
Come and see Jesus, the one who has told me everything I ever did. Come and see the one who is the Messiah. She wasn't eloquent. She wasn't hyper-persuasive. She just was faithful to report what God had done for her. Evangelistic fruit is not bound by your human effort. It doesn't matter how persuasive or eloquent. It doesn't matter how theologically deep or how amazing your speech is. It doesn't matter that you are the most charming person. Those things do not matter because God has already been sending people out. God has already had his sowers out that things that you don't know about that are going on in other people's lives. God is already working in people. And it is our job to go out and to just simply tell people to come. Come and see. See this one who is the Savior of the world. Be faithful. Be faithful to that. As we end this time in John chapter 4, and we're going to come back next week um, where we're going to talk about the latter half of John 4 where Jesus is going to... Uh, have an interesting encounter with an official, and uh, uh, there's something that goes on with his son. This week, as uh, you think about these things, and I hope you do, I hope you think about what God's Word uh, has brought to you this morning. Um, you know, I've prepared this, and I, I have my own words and ways that I try to put this together to help you, but I hope that God is working in you, in you in ways that I don't know about, and I trust His Spirit to do that work to work in you and to stir those things up. But I really do, my hope and my prayer for you is that you will come to the living water, that you will abandon your own cistern, stop trying to keep it yourself, and just come to his well. Draw from his well, draw from the living water, live in him. And that you would then tell others about who this Jesus is who this one is that is the savior of the world and that you would just be faithful to that. You don't have to be amazing. And, and this is something that actually, uh, it, it means a lot to me. It's not really, it's kind of ancillary in, in this, but I, I, when I was a teenager, my youth pastor uh, preached a sermon and it's, I, I'll, I'll never forget it, the joy of being number four. And the title came from uh, a statistic uh, based on a survey that uh, it took most people about uh, seven times to hear the gospel before they made a profession of faith. And so he preached about how sometimes you're just number four. Yeah, you might not see that person come to Christ in that moment. They might not come with you then, but you are a part of the laborers that God is sending out to sow, to reap. You are a part of it. And there is a joy in knowing that you are doing what God has given for us to do. And we can take joy in that. And so sometimes, you're just number four. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, I feel like I'm number four a lot. I do. 
But God has allowed me to find much satisfaction in that, to know that I am a part of that, to know that I am in his kingdom and I am doing what he has given to me to do. Because faithfulness is always preferred over what the world sees as results. We are so results-driven. I go to a gym called Results because, you know, I want to see results. That's what everybody wants, right? You go to the gym, you want to see results. Sometimes you're a little bit uh, kind of crazy about that. You go on January 1st and you're like, I lifted three weights. Where is my six-pack? Immediately. And the world is driven by results, but, but the Lord is driven by faithfulness. Your life in Christ is driven by faithfulness. Be faithful to what he has called you to do. Be faithful to bring others to him. Be faithful to the living water. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back on stage, and uh, they're going to get ready to sing. We're going to be singing a song today uh, to Hem. Some of you might know it, um, but it is, it's called uh, Oh, For a Thousand Tongues to Sing. And the opening verses, uh, verse is, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. And as we sing this song, may this be a, a resounding noise, a, a resounding sound for us to go into the week to proclaim the goodness of our God, the faithfulness of our King, the, the living waters which we all thirst for. That we can find true satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we sing this last song, may we may it be a may it be something that comes from our heart, that it is our desire to see people know you, to sing your praises, to find salvation and redemption. May we have a heart that yearns to see people come to know the Lord. But may we also have a heart that is content for the, for the job that you have laid out for us. And that we would, be, we would be faithful to what you have given to us to love you, to worship you, and to tell others to come and see. So Lord, we we worship you through this. We thank you for your word. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.